Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. You want me to preview yours? Uh, No, I want to be surprised. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) NSL Double Talk featuring Brendan Corner and AL Press. Their topic today is authentic journalism. Brendan is a contributing editor at Wired and the author of The Skies Belong to Us, and now The Hell Will Start, the latter of which he is currently adapting for filmmaker Spike Lee. A former columnist for both the New York Times and Slate, he was named one of Columbia Journalism Review's 10 Young Writers on the Rise. He has also written for Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, Mother Jones, ESPN The Magazine, and many other publications. Ayal is a 2018 Andrew Carnegie Fellow and writer based in New York. A past recipient of the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, his writing and reporting has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The New York Review of Books, and numerous other publications. He is also the author of two nonfiction books, Absolute Convictions and Beautiful Souls. A New York Times editor's choice, Beautiful Souls, has been translated into numerous languages and has been selected as the common read for first-year students at several universities. Ayal will soon release his third book, which will examine the moral landscape of contemporary America through the stories of workers who perform society's most ethically fraught jobs. He has taught and lectured widely about his work and has been a fellow at the Russell Sage Foundation, the New America Foundation, the Open Society Institute, and the Dorothy and Lewis B. Coleman for Scholars and Writers. We are so excited to welcome Brendan Corner and Ayal Press to NSL Double Talk. Hey, Al. How's it going? Good, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's good to see you again. Likewise. I want to start off by asking you about the kind of stories you're attracted to. One thing in reading your work over many years is it seems you keep writing about the same thing again and again, which is people who make difficult decisions that are probably morally right, but cause pretty serious, often negative consequences for themselves and the people around them, their families, their loved ones, people in their orbit. I'm wondering why you're attracted to that kind of story and you keep telling it again and again. Great question. I think that like a lot of people who become journalists, I tried for a long time not to write about personal things, but the personal inevitably comes up. And for me, that question, what does someone do in a sort of morally treacherous situation in the face of danger and fierce opposition is something that shadowed my upbringing. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and um, I am the son of Shalom Press, who is one of the few remaining abortion providers in the city. I didn't grow up thinking of him that way. I just grew up thinking of him as a doctor and in fact as a doctor who every few days would get a a note or flowers or something from one of his patients because he delivered their baby. And I only learned that he did something controversial when I was in high school and protesters started gathering outside of our home. Uh, Then I would see them on the bus on the way to school at his office. Then I started seeing 
uh, scenes from his office on the nightly news uh, and in the newspapers. And I ended up writing about this in my first book, Absolute Convictions. Since then, you're right. I've kind of taken that same question, what does someone do in the face of danger when something they believe in deeply is at stake, when there's a principle that will cost you something. It's interesting that you began by saying that usually the characters I write about make the right choice, because I'm currently working on a book where they don't. They suffer the consequences of actually doing things that pain them greatly because they feel they've transgressed something very deep. I wrote a story recently about a drone operator, a former drone operator, who really came to feel deeply disturbed by what he'd been doing. But it is in the same realm. It's this question of, you know, how do we live with the choices we make, uh, whether those choices are right or wrong? I think that's maybe what fascinates me most about human existence. If I can turn the question around um, and ask you, in your work, both in your books and also in your magazine stories, you write about, I don't want to use the cliche of oddballs, uh, Mm. drifters, but people who don't really fit conventional labels. I'm thinking of the hijackers who, it turns out, were not glamorous members of the Weather Underground or some other radical group, but actually just sort of decided let's hijack a plane and ended up doing it. What attracts you to that kind of story? So I think you're accurate in that I try to write about subjects who are people who power acts upon rather than the powerful. And I think part of it is because I want to write about subjects who are often neglected in journalism and nonfiction and narrative storytelling. We tend to focus on people who are in power and making decisions or people who have resources. And I'm very attracted to stories about people who feel powerless and cornered by circumstance. I guess some part of me just empathizes with people in those situations. I'm not totally sure why, but I've been attracted to stories about drifters and outcasts and outlaws. But I think the other part of it is that um, I'm fascinated by the promise and the peril of reinvention in America. And I love this idea that's at the core to me of what America means and what America promises was that anyone can come here, anyone can be here, no matter what your background or circumstances, ideally people should be able to reinvent themselves and become somebody else essentially. But obviously that ideal is is seldom realized in reality. Lots of things get in the way, prejudice, socioeconomic issues. A lot of things prevent people from doing that, and so often they can only achieve that dream or that American promise when they're in desperate circumstances as an exile or a fugitive or someone who's on the run from the law. And so I'm attracted to that notion of writing about people who are outcast from society and in those desperate circumstances find a way to work their way towards reinvention or finding a new path forward. You brought up empathy. Could you talk a little more about that? It's, it's actually something that, although although I think we write about radically different subjects mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of crossover, that is an issue and that I think anyone who writes about people in desperate circumstances or difficult circumstances has to grapple with. And on the surface, hijackers are not figures with whom most people instinctively empathize. Mm-hmm. You did empathize with your characters How and why is that empathy built? And is it something you have to feel in order to really get into a story? Yeah, I think it's something that's a prerequisite for getting into this line of work, that if you're going to only see 
people in kind of black and white terms, people are heroes or villains and there's no gradations, um, then this isn't the right business for you and this isn't the right artistic expression for you. You talk about having empathy for people who are down in their luck or, or having difficulties in life. I feel that you have to have empathy for everyone because you never know behind that mask of success or power or happiness. There's always turbulence. There's always chaos. There's always regrets and, and pain and suffering. Um, so I think that the challenge of, of doing nonfiction in particular is that you have to have empathy for everyone, even people knowing that your readers instinctively are going to have this knee-jerk reaction of despising these people you write about. I wrote a story for Wired Magazine centered on a young man in Los Angeles who was into swatting people, Hmm. which is basically calling hoax calls to police all over the nation, targeting people that were his foes and enemies, calling him bomb threats to school. He was basically homeless and doing this at a public library. And um, as a result of these actions, a, a person was killed in Wichita, Kansas. Wow a person that very much despised and odious, um, really one of the internet villain, and a person who really hasn't shown much remorse for what happened. And there's a challenge, like how do I talk about and building a relationship with him as well, how do I get inside his head and say that he can't just be a monster? I don't believe that all humans are 100% monster, even those who act monstrously all the time. There has to be a core of something inside of them that's recognizable. So I think trying to locate that common humanity, even with people that are so odious and have committed such atrocities, and that's a real challenge of what we do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Maybe I asked that question because in the latest project I've been working on where I'm writing about people who commit very serious transgressions in many instances, I do feel for them. And in a way, I feel like if I didn't feel for them, I shouldn't be writing about them. Um, But of course, there's a danger to that. I taught a course about writing about charged subjects. And one of the pieces we discussed in that course was a profile in The New Yorker of the shooter in the Ferguson mm-hmm. case. I don't know if you remember, but when the piece came out, there was sort of an outcry on Twitter, you know, that this piece, in a sense, tries to humanize a guy who is a monster, a guy who shouldn't be humanized in the, the vein that magazine writers tend to use. Have you ever come across a story where you say, you know, this isn't for me because I object too strongly to what this person has been involved in? Not necessarily, no. I mean, clearly you have to be selective about the stories you pursue. And so generally I'm not going to be attracted to something about like a serial killer or or something that's just, I think, purient. It's not because I don't think that if given that challenge, I, I couldn't try to find some core of something in there that elicited human emotions beyond revulsion. They're just not the stories that I'm attracted to. I think because we have limited time, because what we do involves so much deep thought and reporting and time and and thinking about structure and many months go into each piece at a minimum, we have to be very selective about what we pursue. And I feel that a lot of thought has to go into what are we going to dedicate our time to. Mm -hmm. So I think that things that strike me as purient generally are not my cup of tea. I think for me, in a sense, the question of empathy is very much shaped by something else you said, which is who has power and who doesn't. And I think that there's probably a contradiction 
in my work and probably in, in many writers' works, maybe in your own work as well, when you interview the head of a very powerful government agency or the spokesperson for a very, very powerful company that has victimized someone, for me at least, the instinct is very different. It's not that I don't see that there's a person occupying that position, but I do see them as part of, you know, as speaking for an entity that has a lot more choice that isn't sort of thrown by circumstance into a desperate situation like the one you describe, but rather can make other choices without harming people. Is that something you you also feel in your work? I mean, do you go into certain interviews saying, I'm, I just want a quote and, you know, I want to get this person? <laughs> I would say the, the, the former, not the latter. I don't think I ever go into interviews saying that this is a gotcha moment for me. I'm going to corner this person and, and make them confront some harsh reality about themselves. I probably know that that question is being vetted six ways to Sunday and that whatever I get is going to be something that's been vetted by lawyers and is not going to be particularly illuminating. Mm-hmm. So that's part of, of what we do. It's not the most satisfying part, but it's part of the basic fairness we have to do as journalists. But to me, what attracts me and what I'm passionate about is not sitting down with titans of industry or it's about sitting down with people who I guess are much closer to my life experience. And also I think as a result are much more unfiltered, have not had their thoughts and their language kind of gone through the machine of lawyers and PR people. I like to hear people's thoughts unfiltered as much as possible because I feel then I can connect with them on a more human level than someone who's a CEO and and basically been prepping for the interview I'm going to be doing with them for a long time. So that's what really keeps me going in this, finding stories about people who otherwise may never have talked to a journalist. Mm. I wanted to ask you really quickly, you said that a lot of the interest in the kind of stories you tell is rooted in, in what occurred to you as a child with your family, with your father. At what point, I mean, can you remember, was there a defining event or some moment or maybe even some process as an adolescent or young man when you were like, the way I want to deal with this kind of these memories and, and what happened as a child is by becoming a writer? That's a great question. I don't remember a particular moment. I think that uh, I can remember a particular moment when I decided to write the story of what happened, of what I'd lived through in my adolescence and what I'd seen my father go through. And it was shortly after I learned the news that one of his colleagues, Barnett Slepian, was murdered in his home and that he had a family, including young boys, who would be growing up without a father. And I think until that point, the whole issue of abortion and this incredibly divisive issue, it just seemed too volatile and too emotional and too polarized. I didn't want to write about it. But once that happened, it was almost like I felt a sense of responsibility to go to it, however uncomfortable, to try to peel it back and tell the story as, as best I could. But, but why writing? What you could have done interpretive dance or you could have become, <laughs> you could have become a lawyer and worked on right. cases that were similar. You could have become following your dad's footsteps and become a doctor. Like, why did you think it was important to channel those emotions and energy into, into the written word? I think that it's through writing that I figure out what I think. I have a real deep desire to know what I think, to try to work through the complicated mess of feelings I would otherwise have. The act of writing for me is not a process of self-discovery. 
I go in, before I really start writing, I, I have a really good sense of the structure. Wow. Um, I'm jealous. Even down to like where section breaks are going to be. Huh. So I don't actually outline. One thing I do that I've developed this system that I don't think many other people do, but I basically storyboard everything I do using images, basically like JPEGs and PNGs on my laptop. So for example, for my last book, I got you know 210 images and I basically sequenced them in the order that the book would be structured with captions for each image. I did that before I even started writing. But how do you know where they're going to go? I can just see it in my mind. Uh, I, can't, I can't explain it the other way. I, I can already see the whole book in my mind or the whole story in my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the greatest sins in writing is you can't just be like, this happened and this happened and this happened. You have to have pauses. You have to step back. You have to step forward. You have to have those moments where you say like, what do I think about this? What does this mean? Why should you, the reader, care about this? So those are kind of built into the structure. We definitely have different approaches to writing. And, and one thing I've noticed is that you know when you get into writing in the first place, you think it's this romantic lifestyle of sitting in a, in a lovely studio somewhere and, and pouring your thoughts onto the page. And then you kind of realize pretty darn quickly that it can be really dreary and frustrating and, and soul-sucking in a lot of mm-hmm. ways because there's so much rewriting and there's so mm-hmm. much editing, uh, self-editing particularly, and there's so much of trashing what you've done. Um, so you talked about the piece you wrote about the drone operator mm-hmm. um, and kind of how he dealt with the guilt and the emotions stemming from his actions as a member of the military. What are some other stories that you're investigating and writing about as part of that endeavor? So one of the stories in the book is about a, a mental health counselor who worked in a prison in Florida. Her name is Harriet Kriskovsky. She worked in the mental health ward where the guards were pretty much systematically torturing and abusing the inmates. And the inmates were her patients. And she went into this work with a very idealized notion of the guards. The guards were there to protect her. She was a woman. It was an all-male prison. She had none of the sort of do-gooder, I want to change the world and help these prisoners attitude that some counselors and social workers in prisons have. But she started hearing things like, you know, they're not giving us food. You know, they bring me a tray and it has no food on it from the inmates, the inmates who were her patients. And so she reported this to her superior. And her superior basically let her know, you know, our job here is not to antagonize security. She heard that message, but she also continued to see that things were just strange and to the point that it was hard to do her job. She was supposed to take the inmates out to the rec yard, which was the only time they got sunlight, the only time they were not actually in, in isolation cells, even though it wasn't called solitary confinement. But she couldn't do it because suddenly the person above her insecurity said, you know, no, we're not going to let them out today. And it kept happening. So she eventually writes an email in which she says, look, I can't do my job. I'm not being allowed to take the guys out to rec yard. And they really need it. These guys are cooped up. They're in solitary confinement. They have mental health issues. This is just not acceptable. She phrased it very delicately. The next day, the next week, she comes back to work and she's running her group session with a bunch of inmates in a room, just like the one we're sitting in. And she looks at the door where the guard is normally standing and there's no one there. And she's been left alone. 
and she starts walking through the halls and the security gates won't open for her. So basically they let her know, you know, you, you have crossed us. Don't do this again. And in the story, both in the book and, and in the, I did a profile of her in the New Yorker. What ends up happening is that she thinks she knows how bad everything is. She doesn't actually. And this story ends up culminating in a murder a murder of an inmate named Darren Rainey who was basically locked in a shower, in a scalding shower, and died of severe burns. And she has to live with the whole experience of having been there and seen this and kind of sensed it, but not gone to the Miami Herald or wherever she might have gone and said, look, these guys are getting abused. You know, it's got to stop before this happens. So that's the kind of story I tell in the book in various iterations. And um, it's both the most complicated, most challenging reporting I've done, in part because of the issues we talked about earlier. You know, to what extent is someone who could do something but feels constrained by circumstance, to what extent are they responsible? What's the standard by which we hold them? And what standard do we hold ourselves to? You know, because after all, the prisons have become our largest mental health institutions because we don't have community services, particularly in poor communities. So it's a journey through the experiences of people who come to these moments and for various reasons continue on and then have to live with the aftermath. In that situation, how hard was it to, to get her to open up to you about these pretty horrific experiences she's had? And how did that compare to, to past times you've gotten people, try to get people to talk about things maybe they'd rather not share? After I answer this, I'd love for you to answer it, and, and maybe with a specific case, because I felt like uh, in the case of Harriet, it was pure luck that she talked to me. I contacted her at the right time she was ready to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And it was years after this murder had happened. If I'd contacted her immediately afterwards, there's no way we would have had a conversation, much less met, much less you know, gone into looking at her notebooks that she kept when she was working there. She needed space, she needed time. So in a way it was luck. With other people in the book that I've written about, I've actually had conversations over the course of a year or longer to kind of draw out and get to what's there. You mentioned earlier there was a story you did, you spent much of last year on. Mm -hmm. Um, Was part of the reason you spent so long that process, the process of getting to know the person? Because it sounds like this is also a person who would not easily open up. Yeah, well, there were two characters in that story. So it's this man named Tyler Barris who is homeless in Los Angeles. He's calling in bomb threats and swatting people from this library. He eventually swats this house in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, It turns out that he'd been given the wrong address. And so all these cops show up at just a completely innocent person's house who's shocked, steps outside in 24-degree conditions in the winter and sees like 20 cops outside his door and is stunned and doesn't really respond to the commands from the police like they expected. And the cops shoot him to death on his own porch. So the other half of that equation was I wanted the the counterbalance to Tyler Barris to be the mother of the man who was killed, a woman named Lisa Finch in Wichita. Obviously, two very different characters, two very different people, but both had suffered a lot and been through a lot. One had committed some pretty atrocious acts um, that resulted in a man's death, but had a very complicated backstory. 
I think approaching Lisa, she was a little more ready to talk because I feel that in her grief, she had decided that a way that she was processing her grief was to talk about her son. So people process what happens to them in very different ways. And I was fortunate in that she felt that the best way to honor his memory was ultimately to share with me. And when I went out there, I was able to really spend a lot of time with her and understand her family and who she was and and the struggles she'd faced. It was more difficult with Tyler, um, first of all, because he was incarcerated, and second of all, because he was naturally suspicious of motives. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, my motive is to to tell a story and to provide a service to people who are going to be reading what I do. It's not altruistic. I'm not there to get him off the hook. And you have to be upfront about that. You can't tell any source that there's any quid pro quo involved, which makes things really difficult. So a lot of it was me trying to convince him that what I can promise you is that I'll listen to you. And what you find is that a lot of times people in difficult circumstances, one big thing they feel in their lives is that they've never really been listened to. They've always been pigeonholed or stereotyped as a certain kind of person. They've maybe gone through various government systems that treated them as somewhat less than human oftentimes. And their grievances, no matter how twisted perhaps, have never really been heard. And so ultimately I was able to convince him that I can promise you I'll listen and I'll be honest about what you've been through and what happened and how you feel. And I'll use your, your words when I talk about you. So it was definitely a process. And I feel that in general, I've gone through situations where, you know, someone is extremely angry, you've contacted them. I think about my last book, it was this young couple that hijacked this plane in 1972. And the female half of this couple, I contacted her mother, who had never really seen her daughter after this hijacking. And uh I'll never forget this. I sent her a letter and and I tried calling her and I eventually went to the town where she lived in Oregon and I called her from the hotel and she she picked up and I said, I explained that I'm the person who's been trying to reach you. And she was extremely angry and she said to me, I'll never talk to you because I'm not going to put my family through this again and hung up the phone. Did she? No, she never talked to me. Mm. No, I put her on the record statement in the book that she wouldn't talk to me, but you can't really blame someone. And I can definitely understand why someone wouldn't want to open up about something so deeply personal. And I think that we, as, as journalists, have to understand that that hurts to be told that I think you're a monster for even bringing up this painful memory that's mine, not yours. I think it can be hard for us sometimes to accept that what we do is fundamentally intrusive on some level. And we have to mm-hmm. think about what's the best way we can approach people in a genuine manner that we're not trying to intrude or make your life more difficult. We're just trying to reach some kind of of deeper truth about what you've experienced, maybe even to help others. When I taught a course and when I talked to students about some of the pieces I've done, the part that the readers don't see are the number of people you contacted who didn't Mm -hmm. speak to you. And so I think that's something that you always have to be ready for. There's something else you said that for me at least is really important. I'll just mention another person I wrote about. In my last book, I wrote about four people who disobey orders, basically. And one of them was an Israeli soldier who had been in Sayeret Matkal, which is the the most elite unit of the Israeli army. He described himself as 
super patriotic. He grew up on a kibbutz and um, had achieved, in a sense, his his lifelong dream of being accepted into this incredibly elite unit. And then he eventually gets to the point where he writes a letter to then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon saying, I refuse to serve. He doesn't want to serve in operations in the West Bank and the occupied territories. It turns out that this is a phenomenon in Israel. There are plenty of people, both on the right and the left, who have refused orders for different reasons. And I'd met a number of them. And at one point after the book came out, someone said, well, why'd you write about this guy? And the difference between him and all the other guys that I'd met is that the other people weren't in the throes of the experience. They had refused, they had processed it, they were ready to talk about it, but it was very ordered and almost formulaic in terms of their kind of expressing what it did to them and what it meant and how it changed them and how they'd grown and changed. Whereas Avner was in the throes of all of this. He looked anguished about it. You could see it, you could feel it. He wasn't at all at peace with just how much he'd overturned his life and going from someone who, you know, had doors open for him or could have had doors open for him anywhere. Uh, Many Israeli prime ministers had served in Sayyid Matkal. That was his life. And then his life became someone who was called a traitor on television. And he was still so in it when I met him that I felt I was able to write about it. I wonder if you feel similarly. That's the kind of person you want, you most want to write about, someone who who hasn't processed it all, but is still kind of processing it in real time. Not necessarily. Sometimes, sure. And I think that's a certain kind of story where you're, you're catching someone before they've come out the other end of the experience. And it does leave the story with a certain kind of quality because there really is not a resolution in that. I've definitely written a lot of stories where people have had time to reflect. And I'm actually interested in maturation and evolution and how people are shaped by experiences over time. So I'm not necessarily only attracted to stories where someone's been through it and there's been the time and the distance for them to think about it in a more thoughtful way. It depends. It really depends. So I can see why you'd be attracted to his story specifically because you wanted the immediacy of someone still struggling. And definitely in that story about this young man incarcerated for this swatting in Wichita, he hadn't gone to trial. He hadn't pled guilty yet. He was really in the thick of it. The family was in the middle of a lawsuit against the city of Wichita. A lot was going on. But I feel that also gave the end of the story a somewhat unsatisfactory quality. Um, so it's a kind of thing where if it had been a couple years down the line, it would have been a very different story. It depends on, on what mood you catch me in when I'm plotting out my next project to some Makes extent. Sense. Brendan, I'm sure you, I'm not the first person to ask this, but what is the hardest thing about this life and career you've chosen? Well, there's certainly the, the fact that you're only as good as your next idea or next story, and um, you invest so much of yourself in these projects. And sometimes they affect you pretty emotionally, and you just feel exhausted and haggard and, and maybe even pessimistic about human nature when you're done with something. But there's no time for rest or recovery. You have to have the next thing going. And that can be really taxing, um, especially, you know, like myself, I have young children, and I want to be able to give them the best of me. And sometimes that's not 
totally feasible when I've spent all day writing about some murder in, in Wichita or wherever it might be, and I've gotten really deep into these characters' heads, and I, I feel, to some extent, some small extent, thankfully, but the pain and what they're going through. So I think that, the emotional toll of it, and the constant hustle to keep the operation afloat uh, can be really taxing. And I also think that just the process of writing, I feel that sitting down and seeing your words pour out and realizing that nine times out of a 10 or maybe 49 times out of 50, the sentences you write are pretty worthless. And having to be a pretty harsh critic of yourself and your own writing to push yourself to write something that you can be proud of when it's out into the world can be a pretty dispiriting experience. So it, it really, uh, it's a true marathon, not a sprint kind of profession. So I, I find that really, really trying. I agree with a lot of that and, and have felt the same things. I think the other piece of it is uh, I often think I must be the only person who writes this many drafts and has to do this over and over and over again, even just how to end a chapter. Oh, like this, in one day it's done, and then you read it, you print it out, and it's just wrong, and it doesn't work. To rip it up and to go back, and then maybe to realize, well, it doesn't work because the chapter shouldn't end that way, and the wrong turn came six pages earlier when you thought you'd worked something out and you really hadn't. For me, that it's a constant sort of, you have to muster the energy every day to, in a sense, attack your own work uh, and try to make it better, unless it just pours out of you and it's perfect, which I think there are a few writers out there who wrote and printed first drafts. Hopefully there aren't that many. Christopher Hitchens, I heard, would do this, would sit down and, and actually type out a column, and maybe a comma had to be changed. That was it. But the one thing you didn't mention was, you mentioned the hustle, but what about the financial sort of the survival piece of it. And I think of this, you know, in a sense, we entered this at a similar, basically similar age and similar moment, but the world of journalism has changed so much and now it's blogging and often very poorly paid online writing. Does that worry you? And both for your own career, but maybe also for young people getting into it who were just like you. It definitely worries me, but it's not something I feel this... I can have too much anxiety about because I feel like I'm in so deep at this point that <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound at this moment. So I kind of have to make it work. So I, I definitely I understand that the route that people far younger than I am is going to take into this line of work and this craft is different than the one that I had. But the optimist in me has to trust that those who really love doing this and, and telling stories and writing and sharing narratives with the world will find a way. Great to talk to you. Good to see you again. Good to see you all. Take care, man. Yeah, you too. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning. <laughs>